Hello and welcome to The Witness Podcast. I'm Alison Crogan. And I'm Carissa Lee. And today we're going to be talking about various things to do with whiteness, blackness and everything in between, and in particular about a couple of artworks that have created a fair amount of frisson, it's easy to say, around ideas of exclusion. Recently, Isabella Mason's dance work, Where We Stand at the Victorian College of the Arts, Dance on 2018 season, which celebrates 40 years of the VCA's dance course, has been making waves. Tell us a little bit about it, Carissa. Yeah, I found this in The Australian the other day. It was a bit of a misleading title, to be honest. Something about white segregation, which I thought was a bit of an oxymoron in itself. (laughs) This young woman who's Maori and European... She had this performance where white people were actually allowed to attend, but it was on the condition that they came in and they signed a brown piece of paper that said, I acknowledge where I stand. And it was acknowledging their whiteness and their privilege before they entered the space. Some people refused to do that because they found that a bit confronting. Some people did, and then they left halfway through the show anyway. But there was a really interesting aspect of the performance. Once there were more white people than coloured in the space, the dance would actually stop and people were asked to sit and think and reflect on why that might be and what that means. And this did result in people leaving and this resulted also in some really good feedback too. Like some people actually approached Isabella afterwards and thanked her for it. So there were good and bad experiences from it. But yeah, the fact that the Australian is crying segregation is a little bit odd. It's like, ah, oh, we, we don't get access to this piece because you know, we have to do a thing first. I mean, there are some performances where some mob aren't allowed in there at all. So, yeah, I really don't know what the problem is. Well, it's interesting trying to untangle this. I mean, this is the kind of work that does create headlines. And obviously when people like the Multicultural Affairs Minister Alan Tudge, the IPA, that's the Institute of Public Affairs, which is a right-wing think tank, is all over it, Mm. Tony Abbott, and they're all there demanding that this dance piece be closed down. These are the free speech warriors of our time because of, quote, segregation. Mm. That's a whole ball of worms, which is about a really interesting kind of projection. First of all, these kinds of things from um, right-wing pundits, these objections to art are really common, actually. And they turn up at times when people want to cut arts funding or Mm. stamp out a particular kind of artwork. I'm just thinking there was a huge fuss a few years ago about Philip Adams's piece with his company, a dance piece at Acker, which was actually not funded by the government at all. It was privately funded. And it sounded like probably not my thing where dancers were basically taking shits in gilded potties or something like that. I never saw this thing. Anyway, there was an enormous fuss about it. And Ballet Lab, you know, I've adored some of their work and I've loathed some of their work, but, you know, you don't have to go. Oh, yeah. Anyway, this thing that was not publicly funded at all became a bit of a club to beat public funding with, you know, look at what your taxpayers' dollars are funding. And I think now that Indigenous voices are coming to the fore a bit and being heard, identity politics Mm. is the new kind of bad avant-garde art. And it's used to whip up dissension. It's used to whip up 
this kind of basically suppression of expression. Yeah. So it's deeply concerning. But first of all, before we talk about that, let's untangle this artwork a little more. Like, obviously, the context of the artwork is part of the artwork. Mm, definitely, yeah. What is that kind of exclusion saying, do you think, Carissa? Well, I think I wouldn't even call it exclusion. I would call it just recognition. It's this idea of making people not necessarily check their privilege, but be conscious of it while they're in the space. Say the fact that it was pointed out that there were more white people in the audience than coloured, it just goes to show just how diminishing Indigenous people are as a presence in our country. And I think it's such an important thing to take note of. People don't realise that the lifespan of our mob in particular is horrific. I've had to deal with so much sorry business in the last couple of years for people that were under the age of 65 and it's just, it's not on, but but yet it seems to be quite accepted because that's just how things are. It's a bit different for Isabella because, you know, she's Maori, but I imagine that this was something that she wanted to put forward because there is an exclusion of coloured people in the world as it is and I think that actually pointing the finger and saying whose fault is this is a really important thing and a really important act. And it's not asking for guilt. It's not asking for sorries. It's asking to be aware and to act accordingly, to stop trying to exclude us. It's quite clearly about the fact that cultural spaces in particular, Mm. which are privileged spaces, let's face it, are mainly white spaces and asking what that means. Yeah, and I think if you look historically at corroborees in particular, if you look at a lot of Mary Rose Casey's work, she's done a lot of research into different corroborees that have been strictly for ceremony and not for white consumption, I suppose. However, mob have been able to curate and create performances that are acceptable to public audiences and that kind of thing. Do you read of all these kind of cases like There was an article by Parsons where he was talking about a gentleman in North Adelaide who had actually walked in on a women's business corroboree that had happened because he thought he had the right to see it. And it's like, why can't you accept that sometimes you're not entitled to see something? And it's a very prominent trait of white culture is that it's all consuming. They need all access. They need oversaturation of what they're wanting to see because I guess in a way there aren't many examples of not wanting to see something or not being allowed to see something. There's never been a time where they can't. And so when it happens, it can be a little bit, I guess, confronting or it feels especially excluding because it's something they're not used to. I don't know. Not that I'm making excuses, but yeah, it just seems like there is this weird entitlement that comes with whiteness that they think, well, why can't I? We've given you so much. We've given you the space to do these things. Why don't you let us in? Yeah, that begs a lot of questions, doesn't it? But it's also the thing about... If these spaces are white and we could add middle class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. I mean, they're spaces in which people aren't explicitly excluded, mm. but they're also spaces in which someone who's absolutely working class or yeah. underclass is not going to feel welcome in, in many ways because they don't know the codes, even if they're white. Yeah. So there's these kinds of implicit exclusions to cultural spaces that that performance actually brings up, I think, in saying where, you know, there's an absence here and it's most obviously a racial absence, but it doesn't stop there. Mm. And that's kind of interesting. But people 
I think the confronting thing for a white person is, yes, that assumption that as a cultural consumer, and I hate that word consumer. Yeah. I actually hate it, especially as far as culture is concerned, because I don't think you consume culture. I think you encounter it, you relate to it, you respond to it, but I don't think you consume it. Mm. That's beside the point. But it's confronting to say, come to a space where you're not allowed in, or maybe you can't look at this. But on the other hand, there are aspects of white culture where things like that happen all the time. There are things that are considered sacred in some ways that are only for the initiated or, you know, men's clubs still exist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a certain amount of, if you like, hypocrisy around the discussion. I'm not sure it's worth pointing out the hypocrisy because the hypocrisy of that kind, particularly from the right-wing think tank community, (laughs) you can call it that, is always about protecting their speech at the expense of others. That really worries me. But it's interesting because it's not the first artwork of that kind where that's happened. There was uh, in 2015 in the RMIT graduate show, there was a young Indigenous visual artist called Gabby Brigg who had a piece of visual art called This Is For You, which non-Indigenous people were not allowed into. And I thought her statement on the piece was really interesting because she says, this is my space, it is a safe space, a black space. I have autonomy and sovereignty over my space, body, movement and blackness. And then she finishes, this is for you. So what do you think she meant by that? I can kind of relate to that in a way because when you go to an event that there are so many black fellas, I feel so much safer and I feel like I can breathe a little easier. Yeah, particularly when working in academia or when there's been like so many white people in the room, you just kind of are conscious of the fact that you're the only other there. And this is for you, I think, means you get to go into this space and it's it's just for you. You don't have to share this with anyone because we are being forced to share so much as it is and we are a culture that does that. But to have something taken means something completely different and this is for you means we're actually being given something for a change and I think that's very important. It's kind of interesting because reading it as a white person, it's also saying this is for me. And I find that interesting like, because the statement's open in that way. There's this really wicked academic, Eve Tuck. She wrote this paper called The Right to Refuse and it talks about the things that people don't say in fieldwork, particularly when you're talking to people of different cultures. Sometimes they pose a certain question and they just say, no, we can't go there. And Eve Tuck kind of talks about the gift in the negative space of what isn't being said and you as a white person it's a gift to not go further with that to actually allow them that space because we are or you know a lot of different mobs are an invaded race to choose not to invade I mean it sounds kind of messed up that that's a gift but in a way your absence is sometimes the most beautiful thing because you're allowing someone else to have something and that's not something we get very often. I read it generously. Yeah. And I find that really interesting. Yeah, it's a nice thing though. I wish that everyone did that. <laughs> this is for you is a generous statement. But what stops people reading that as generosity towards them? In the case of 
Eve Tuck with this particular kind of experiment. She was looking at teaching Maori students and white students Maori content. And so the students were separated because some students were allowed some things and some students were allowed others. And the white students were the ones that said, well, why can't we all learn together? You know, we should have access to certain things too. But culturally, it just wasn't appropriate. And I guess a want to be involved is good. But at the same time, I think being told that you just can't can lead to some kind of I guess, animosity. Mm. They feel like, well, I want to be involved. I actually want to know about your culture. You should be grateful about that. So why don't you teach me? I, I, I want to know. And it's like, well, it, it even goes in everyday conversation. Like when someone realises what race you are, you become this one-stop black shop and people think, oh, yeah, I'm just going to ask you this, this and this. And, oh, why do Aboriginal people do this? And it's like, okay, one, I'm not all Aboriginal people. <laughs> and two, some things you just don't get to know about. <laughs> like yeah. You just got to trust us. I mean, you don't go yeah. up to white strangers and interrogate mm. them about every aspect of their lives. I mean, yeah. you know, for us, there are things that are considered private, even in this age of the internet and Absolutely. digital exposure. There's still things that we like to think are private and that, yeah. you know, you don't have other people you don't know and don't trust, don't have a right to know. And I feel like as women, regardless of race, we get a lot of questions about that too. I guess it's because we as women are sort of, we kind of lose all privacy when you think about it because if we decide we're going to go have babies, well, then our body becomes a whole other place. And Oh, my God, being pregnant in public. Oh, my God, so many people touch your tummy and oh, ask you stuff. Oh, and judgment, man. Oh, really? Oh, God, yes. If you're saying, if you're not dressing the wrong way, you're not dressing like, I mean, this is me remembering being pregnant, but mm. if you're dressing the wrong way or behaving, you know, having a glass of wine or whatever, mm. and how people uh, feel totally empowered to make statements. This is strangers. Yeah. People you've never met before in your life. And it just existing in the world. Like if you wear certain stuff as a woman or mm. if you say certain things or if you act a certain way, where it's almost like there's this entitlement to, oh, no, love, you should be nice. Mm. Come on, calm down sort of a thing. And I feel like feminist theatre can sometimes be seen as that too. It's like, oh, it's a bit angry, isn't it? And it's like, oh, come on, mate. <laughs> we don't, we don't, we're not just all playing nice here. We can have no, feelings. No, we're, allowed, we're allowed to be horrible sometimes. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting thinking about what is this thing, whiteness, blackness, whatever, these things are all so much in public discourse right now in ways that don't seem to me very useful. Like blackness is something that's always interrogated in, yeah. in public discussion. It always is. It's something that's kind of questionable and can be questioned. And whiteness is something, and this is the problem, it's something that is just taken for granted. Mm. And questioning it is crossing the line. Yeah. The, the mere questioning of whiteness, which is a construction. We constructed it. And it was constructed out of colonial culture. There's a very interesting book called Cities of the Dead, which is a fascinating discussion of particularly the funerary culture in New Orleans and the slave culture. Mm. And in particular, it talks about the construction of whiteness in relation to black slavery yeah, and how that actually had almost nothing to do with skin colour because there were people who were blonde, blue-eyed, who were, because they were like one-eighth black, could be sold at auction as slaves yeah. and were sold at auction as slaves. Or the first protest against segregation in the South 
happened, I think, like late 19th century. And it was a man who got on a train in the white compartment. And he got in there because he was white. And he had to actively show his papers before he was thrown out because he looked white. Mm. But he wasn't. He was classified as a Negro. Wow. So, you know, the thing about skin colour in a way is a bit of a misnomer about these constructions. Mm. Who becomes white? You know, to be Jewish was not white once. Mm. And now it's mostly white. Not always. Yeah. And to be Greek was not white. Still isn't in a funny way. You know, like who's accepted into the, you know, magic circle of whiteness yeah. and who isn't is a constantly volatile thing. Yeah, it's like it's almost as though this rule of blackness is kind of pressed upon us by white people, which is so odd. It's weird uniformity that they wrote the book for. And it's so strange to me because I constantly, as a pale Indigenous person, I constantly get treated like I'm not Caucasian, but then I I also get treated like I'm not very black. It's they're like, oh, but you don't look Aboriginal. But then, oh, you're not. Where? What are you from? Like, and you know, I'm okay to answer that. But at the same time, one side saying, oh, you're not black enough to technically count, but then the other side saying, oh, but you're not very white. It's like, okay, (laughs) it's this weird idea of whiteness as a construct. It just kind of like, ah. And it infects everything. I mean, I suppose one of the things we're talking about here is how colonialism works in action in cultural spaces Mm. and in cultural discussion as a subtext that's not acknowledged. Yeah, I guess because particularly in the theatre, it's a very colonial sort of setup a lot of the time too. And I guess as a result, it's like, oh, well, you're in our space now. You've got to entertain us. And there's this weird idea of what these performances need to contain. And sometimes when you get those performances like Nakia Louie's Black Showgirls and they kind of point the finger at you a little bit, you get this weird kind of, oh, well, I came to see the show to get yelled at. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you did. <laughs> Sorry. It's this really weird idea of entitlement that comes with the space, which is why I think stuff like treaties are important because then we get to, to share the space a little more officially because it feels like we're constantly having to tiptoe around this fragile white idea and I think a lot of the time because we've got stuff like sorry day they Mm. think that means they need to feel guilty Mm. and it's like no we don't want your guilt we just want you to acknowledge we just want you to change a certain date that'd be great yeah it's not about guilt I mean I've actually don't understand that maybe I've got a bit of a blind spot with guilt but I come from this long line of colonists few of them gave all the orders I mean you know, there's a lot to look at and a lot to examine, but I don't feel guilty about that. I'm the product of that. Yeah. And I've lived my life and I think whatever I think. And certainly I look around and see how structurally those actions impact on now. I don't feel guilty about that, but I do feel like a sense that it has to be addressed. Definitely, yeah. I think, um, yeah, it needs to, something needs to be done in spite of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm white. Yeah. It, There's a lot it, I like about my culture and a lot that formed me and a lot that's quite liberating, but you still have to look at it. I mean, I know, I suppose I've done this all my life as a woman, reading all the poets I adored when I was a kid, except I was lucky enough to be born Australian, so I had people like Judith Wright and Ujiru Nanakul and mm. uh, Gwen Howard as models. And this is when I was very young and they were all heroes to me, but... Mainly it's men. The great poets are mainly men. So you get so used to reading yourself between the lines of this 
culture and reading yourself in mm. and just sort of stepping back at the exclusions. Yeah. So when you start sort of imagining out from that experience of you're not part of this, you are not the person being addressed, you would perhaps might be a reader, you might be allowed to be a reader, but you are not allowed to be the creator in here or the director of this kind of thing. And that's what the culture tells you and has been telling you that hundreds of years. Yeah. And that's interesting. Yeah, and I think there are instances where collaborations can happen, mm. but you need to be invited. You, can, you don't get to just show up. Like, yeah, if you look at collaborations in the theatre between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, it, it's fantastic some of the work that comes out if it's done ethically. Yeah. And, yeah, I think together like it can really work well. There's not necessarily a lack of acknowledgement of the white dude in the room, but I think it, it needs to be acknowledged that, okay, yeah, this stuff happened, we're moving in spite of it and we're going to make some really great work and hopefully make a difference. It's kind of like, I sometimes I think it's like reprogramming neural pathways, you know, that yeah. thing that we have to learn new ways of being. Yeah. And actually that's a really exciting prospect. Definitely. Because that opens up new ways of seeing and perceiving and mm. acting in the world. And I think that it doesn't just make better art, you know, yeah. it, it makes whole lot of things more interesting and and better yeah and it's pretty urgent we learn them now I reckon definitely I mean a reframing is way overdue particularly in the kind of casual racist climate that good old auntie Pauline is now reintroducing <laughs> but you know art can help reframe actually taking the time to read some black writers can help reframe but the way we see the world is so important because it impacts how we do everything and how we interact with each other and that's that can sometimes be really detrimental yeah, that seems like a great place to stop. So thank you, Carissa. <laughs> You've been listening to The Witness Podcast with Alison Crogan and Carissa Lee, Ben Keen on Sound, and thanks for listening. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe. We need your support if we're to continue this work, and you are the reason we want to do it. <laughs>